That was the sweatiest transition you've ever given, and I was here for it. Listen, we all know it wasn't the sweatiest transition I've ever given. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I'm one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and I'm joined, as always, by my fellow co-host, Martha Sullivan, YA librarian and toy collector. Ooh, what toys are we collecting? Uh, So I recently found a website, well, okay, let me back up. (laughs) Um, I was pretty deep into the collector vinyl scene for a while, vinyl toys. Is that Funko Pops and such? It's... A little, it's a step above Funko Pop. So like actual artists designing vinyl (laughs) toys. But if you think of Funko Pop as like the gateway drug here. Got it. Okay. Yep. Um, Yep. Got it. But yeah. So one of the popular modes for kind of the cheaper end of those toys are blind boxes. So a box where you have like a series of toys and you don't know which one is in the box until you open it. Sure. Uh, The other thing to think about is there is a particular uh, kind of doll in the world called ball-jointed dolls, which are very customizable. Um, They tend to be a lot of, like, blank mannequin bodies, and then people get very into, like, customizing hair, eyes, facial features, clothing. Like, they're they're sort of selling point. Are those the ones that, like, artists artists would use to, like, help, like, see a pose? Like, it's, it's a blank, usually wooden that, or maybe metal. No. Okay. So, ball-jointed dolls are usually made out of plastic, and they have joints at, um, like, wrist, elbow, shoulder, um, knee, ankle, neck. Um, what you are thinking of is, like, an artist's posing mannequin. That, These are actual dolls. Okay, okay. I, I, was, I was wondering if this was, like, people taking artist posing mannequins and then, like, going ham on them and like giving them hair and painting them and etc uh but no, they th- are these are actual going, dolls. yeah they're actual dolls um and i say all of this because i found a website that sells six inch tall um ball jointed dolls at a blind in blind boxes so they are blind box series of toys um with all of the like articulation and customization of a ball jointed doll but like because they're um blind packed they're at a lower price point sure and they are so cute and my finger slipped and now i own four of them (laughs) so this is a developing problem martha Um, i I gotta say i understand that they come in all all kinds of styles but just a quick google search of ball jointed dolls you're gonna get yourself a haunted doll one of these days and i know that's what you're aiming for but i was gonna say i'm sort of insulted to think I'm sort of insulted that you don't assume I already own one. I mean, you, you said you only had four. I don't know what the uh, the over under on how many of them are haunted uh, is. Oh, oh, I just meant like no, not one of these. I just meant like a haunted doll in general. Ah, okay, um, fair. Oh, well, I'm I'm, I'm looking have... at these. I'm like, oh, these these are dolls that like you could buy for a horror movie prop, and it would be like the creepy Annabelle <laughs> type, you know. Well, mine, I have two cute little pinafore bunny girls. I have a little sheep girl and I have a little uh, punk 
roller skater bunny girl who also is currently holding a another toy that was a blind packed splatoon gun. <laughs> so it's a problem. Um, <laughs> I I am a collector by nature. My husband and I both like to have things and display them and like interact with them. And like I said, I was pretty into the designer, the designer vinyl art toy scene. And these girls are just so cute. I'm not super interested in the customization aspect of them. I do like how posable they are. Um, and I am now in a discord server for collectors of them who do box splits where they will buy mm. a whole case of them. Mm -hmm. And then you can reserve the one that you want. So I don't have to worry about the blind pack aspect of it. <laughs> that's that's um, going to hack, yes. hack the blind pack. Uh, <laughs> angle. <laughs> but yes, more on this situation as it develops. <laughs> uh well is is that what is stuck in your head and the stuck in your head is the thing that we most want to talk about in terms of pop culture um or do you have something else that's also stuck in your head um you go first and come back to me okay uh well what's what's stuck in my head is a book that i devoured in literally it's thursday i started this on saturday so that's what five days um Frequent listeners will know that I have been slowly plotting my way through Moby Dick, and I finally finished it. So as my reward, I read the third book in the Children of Time series by Adrian Tchaikovsky. This is Children of Memory. Um, this is hard sci-fi. We're talking, um, uh, the, the premise of the first book, at least, is, um... We're, we're trying to terraform worlds. We've got a, a special nanovirus that's going to uplift... Uh, monkeys is the idea, uh, make them, you know, super intelligent, kickstart their evolution. Things go horribly wrong back on Earth. The monkeys don't make it. And instead, we have a planet of uplifted, hyper-intelligent spiders. Uh, slowly developing oh, over generations. It's it's an incredible book. Uh, it the, the first book deals with a um, the slowly disintegrating, both physically and psychologically, uh, memory remains of one of those early Earth terraformers who has uploaded her consciousness into a computer, and these slowly evolving spiders, and the last remnants of Earth putting themselves up on great uh, generation ships uh, to try to find a planet that's more hospitable than Earth because we royally blew up Earth. Um, and the interactions that, you know, develop. Um, the second book is about so, so first book, Uplifted Spiders. Great. Sounds good. Second book, Uplifted Octopi. Well, for you had my interest with spiders. Now you have my attention. I love octopi. This is the third book in the series, and we are dealing with... Hmm, I don't know if I can call them hyper... We can call them hyper-intelligent. Uh, hyper-intelligent corvids. Uh, crows and ravens are the species in this. So now I'm just hooting and hollering uh, like a bird might because that is my A number one thing. Martha, the thing with the ravens, they are, I, I, yes. can say, I can say they're hyper-intelligent because they work as dyads, one of which um, notices and catalogs new things, and the other which processes processes and problem solves you know using using all the all the new things one of them is hyper fixated on newness the other is hyper fixated on problem solving um it took I, this is not a spoiler in any way but near the end of the book there's a throwaway line where he says like um uh thought and memory and i 
threw the book up in the air because that is, of course, a reference to Hugin and Munin, Odin's two ravens. Yes. And I'm like, that's how he came up with the idea. One, like in all the other descriptions, it's like a hyper, a hyper processing animal and like a hyper fixated on newness animal. And never once did I think like, oh, that's thought and memory right there. Um, uh, and then he, he said it at the end and I threw the book up in the air and shouted um, in, in delight. Uh, but the thing is, these birds don't believe they're sentient. They... They're like, yes, we, they also don't believe anything is sentient, but they're like, no, we're not sentient. I am a machine that identifies newness and my partner is a machine that, uh, you know, solves problems, but there's no sentience happening here. Um, and so a lot of this, this book is sort of about AI and about, uh, what is sentient and what isn't. Because again, we have the memory of an old earth terraformer from eons ago, whose brain was uplifted and, or like uploaded into a computer and is now being run by ants. Don't ask. Uh, and we have, you know, hyper-intelligent corvids that don't believe that they're intelligent. So it's like, what is sentience? Do you have to think that you're sentient in order to be sentient? Uh, the bird's argument is that nothing is sentient. The humans are just deluding themselves. Um, but does that make them any less, you know, people than than humans might be or than the spiders might be? Um it's it's a it's a really fascinating book. I I've loved all three of the books in this series. I highly recommend them. Um, he's digging into really deep philosophical questions, obviously, and and telling stories that literally each book spans generations. You know, and and, and not even generations. It spans millennia. Um, and and he tells the story really well. So, uh, there we go. That's that's what's stuck in my head. I again, I devoured this book. Um, and I, I'm kind of sad now that I've read all three books in the series. I have nothing to look forward to. <laughs> so are they all are they all related? Like are yes. they? Yes. Um, okay. The the uh, the the human terraformer who put her brain in a computer is in all three books. Um, the spiders are in all three books. The octopi are in the last two books. You know. Um, because as as there's as people meet each other, as these species meet each other across the stars. They have conflict, but then sometimes resolve those conflicts and move forward as a, a grand new unified, you know, not politically unified, but sort of culturally unified of, of like, we're all children of Earth, right? Fascinating. Um, um, and also, <laughs> the... <laughs> so you are out here ruminating on the nature of sentience, and I am over here finally having seen Fast X. <laughs> I mean, we could ruminate on the nature of sentience in that movie too. <laughs> is oh there any? God. Is there any? Who knows? Yes. <laughs> you shut your mouth. <laughs> I, I haven't seen Fast X. I've only read the um, tepid reviews. Look, <laughs> look. It is nonsense, but they continue. So this is my. You know when you see on social media, people are like, you can only pick three and they'll have, like, all of David Fincher's movies or, like, you know, pick the one of these things that survives or whatever. Yeah. There was one that was going on that was all, like, action movie franchises. So you had so Die Hard, the MCU, you had Mission Impossible, you had Die Hard, all of these. And I was like, I would fire every single one of these franchises into the sun 
if it meant that they would keep making Fast and Furious movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> that that take, we'll see you in front of The Hague in 10 years, but, you know, that's okay. <laughs> it's all right, because my family will come for me. <laughs> uh, no, it is super fun. It is not... It... They are showing their seams now and have been since Paul Walker passed away. Um, the chemistry between him and Vin Diesel was really sort of core to, I think, what makes these movies great. Yeah, movies and, five, six, and seven are just incredible. And nine, I think, brings it back a little bit. Um, this one, they are increasingly less concerned with making sense. And I think that you can feel that a little bit in 10. And also it ends much like the new Mission Impossible this year. It ends at a truly bizarre cliffhanger point. Mm -hmm. um, but I had a great time. I mean, this is a movie where a giant bomb that is on fire rolls through the streets of Rome and threatens to destroy the Vatican. Like... I had a good time. <laughs> and Jason Momoa was excellent as the new bad guy. Everything um, I've heard about Momoa is that it's like he knows what movie he's in. Which is all all you need in a you know in, in a fast and furious movie. It's like you want you well, want everyone to know what movie they're in. I and I would argue that they do. Like at this point everyone is doing what I want them to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Like I said, I, I, I had a good time. <laughs> um, it is not the best of these movies. It is not the worst of these movies. What do you um, think is the worst? I really. And I, 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 I have big gaps. Two. Okay. I have big gaps in my fast and furious, like exposure. Um, yeah, I don't love two. I didn't love eight. Mm -hmm. um, Which one was the submarine? Was that eight or nine? That's eight. Okay. Nine is the one with John Cena. I, I don't think I've seen eight, nine, or ten. Like, I really enjoyed five, six, and seven. I meant to see eight and then didn't, and here we are. Um, I don't even know if I've seen yeah, four. Eight? Eight's not great. Nine is pretty fantastic. That's a Charlize. Um, I rewatched. Yes. Well, eight. She starts in eight and has ah, been okay. continuing. Uh, becomes a good guy by number nine, or is she the rare one? No, who... no, no, no. Ooh. She's still. She oh, she's yeah, the Michelle rare Rodriguez character has... who's who's not doing the bad guy in one movie and then at begrudging ally in second movie and then full on part of the family <laughs> in third movie. <laughs> Um, but no, she and Michelle Rodriguez get a really great fight sequence in Fast 10. Mm. <laughs> Michelle Rodriguez just beats the sh out of her. Excuse me. You're going to have to bleep that, and I, I apologize am. for it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I, I know that word on the street is that we are approaching the end of this particular branch of these movies. Um I love them and I will continue to watch them as long as Vin Diesel wants to produce them. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you finally got around to seeing it. I'm a little surprised you didn't see it back when it uh, dropped originally. I tried. The timing didn't yeah. really, the timing wasn't great. Yeah. Um, it was during a part of the summer that my husband and I both spent a lot of it being sick. 
Mm, so mm. going out to the movie theater was kind of I also miss the new Spider-Man in theaters, which was a super bummer. Yeah. Which that, I have now also seen. Yeah. That's I have more also of a seen bummer. that one. Um I've had some feelings about that too, but I feel like we may uh <laughs> that may come up again at some yeah. point. Yeah, we, we should hold off on that one. Um other than just saying that uh Jason Schwartzman's having a year. Uh <sighs> Which is a good segue into what we're actually going to be talking about today, because today we're putting Wes Anderson on trial. Not really. That's just a joking title I, I sort of say, came up with a while ago on this a, one. But it's that's a fun punchy line. A, it is, but it's more like you're convincing me why I should like him. <laughs> yes, we're we're, we're going to have a wide ranging discussion about Wes Anderson. We have very different takes on him, uh, but I think we both sort of agree on Asteroid City, his most recent feature film. Uh, and then he's also got four shorts on Netflix that um, Netflix is fully not advertising in any meaningful way. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, get ready for an excellent needle drop from a 60s jingle pop band or, you know, possibly the the zombies. Um, and some meticulously set designed slow camera panning shots um, as as we talk about Wes Anderson. And we are back. Uh, so I before the break, I jokingly said we're putting Wes Anderson on trial. That's obviously not what we're doing. Um, instead, this this episode is coming out from just an ongoing conversation, Martha, that you and I have been having over the past decade uh, about Wes Anderson, where um, you you really liked a lot of his earlier stuff and then bounced off some of his more critically acclaimed stuff in the mid-teens. Uh, but now we're sort of in a, in a year where there's a lot of West coming out. We have both Asteroid City, uh, and he's got four shorts on Netflix. So this felt, also you, you saw Asteroid City and enjoyed it. So this felt like a good time to sort of come back and, and look at him and sort of look at the, the West movies that you really enjoy, uh, and then compare that with sort of his more recent things and sort of see what's going on. Um, I'm supposed to convince you that he's good or something. You're going to make a strong <laughs> and compelling argument that he is a Western, capital W, Western filmmaker, uh, which I will agree with. Um, uh, I believe I said American. <laughs> yeah, sorry. And, and by Western, I meant like Wild West, not um, like the Western cultural experience going back to ancient Greece or whatever. <laughs> um uh, like western as a genre uh so yeah but american uh perfect. oh i don't think i i was gonna say i don't think i said that at all <laughs> i i think he's a western as a uh, well okay we'll get we'll get into it um and, but i would now love to see him make a western oh yeah i would love to see him make anything okay so yeah i'm, I'm fully in the bag for him is what it comes down to but let's <laughs> let's start with your is it still your favorite, uh, the Darjeeling Limited? Yes. Okay. Okay. So here is my here is my Wes Anderson journey. I saw the Royal Tenenbaums along with the rest of the world. It's a brilliant movie, like one of the best movies ever made. I will never contest this. Um, I did not see Rushmore until very recently. Mm -hmm. Um, I enjoyed that. I don't love it as much as some people, but I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Same. Um. I, I think The Life Aquatic is fine. I know that you are a pretty big fan of that one. 
I um, think it's among his weaker I'm... works, but that still makes it like an eight out of ten. I have a great time. Um I also think that the life aquatic is when we start seeing the direction that he ends up going into. And I will get back to that in just a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the Darjeeling limited. I think it is a beautifully sad portrait of three brothers who are trying to figure out how to relate to each other again in the face of tragedy. Um, it is one where the aesthetic is like firing on all cylinders for me. I think everybody is doing a really good job of balancing like a very weird performance with a very heartfelt performance. And this is the space that I love to see Wes Anderson occupy. Um, I also think that Fantastic Mr. Fox is brilliant and was the movie that I think we all watched and went, oh, he makes animated movies. <laughs> like, that's what he's been doing. He happens to use live, live act, like living actors, but they're animated movies. Yes, uh, which I also think, just as a quick sidebar, is one of the reasons his Roll Doll shorts are so fun, because they have a little bit of that stop-motion stuff thrown in there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and they're also I... so, like, they're so far removed, and, and we'll get into this with his later stuff, they're so, the Roll Doll stuff are, like, in artificial worlds even more so than his normal things, you know? Um, like, the swan is just, and like, that's, I... that's like a, a stage, you know? It's almost a fairy, like it's a fairy tale, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, and then I watched Moonrise Kingdom recently, and I really hated it. I really, really disliked it. I, I, I saw um, Moonrise Kingdom in theaters, and I haven't seen it since. And in theaters, I really enjoyed it, but I haven't felt a compelling interest to go back and rewatch it like I have with almost all of his other movies. Whatever he is doing does not work for me when it when he is doing it with children. Like, there Hmm. was something about that that just felt... Like, Wes Anderson is coded in this kind of artificiality. Like, everything he does... um, And it has become more so with almost every movie... With every movie that he's made, is so particularly staged and particularly directed. Um, And there was something about that... Like, his dialogue and everything that really felt strange and uncomfortable to me coming from children well like a lot of his stuff is like an intentional artificial stiltedness and and again it's like no no child would ever talk stand or be like that and and then there is a moment of and then there is a moment of violence in moonlight kingdom that really was like or moonrise kingdom that really was like oh i don't like mm any of this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so i and i didn't i didn't love the grand budapest hotel i was gonna try and revisit it for this episode but i've been going through a whole thing and just wasn't able to do so um i did watch the french dispatch for the first time for this episode mm-hmm. and unfortunately that one really leans harder into the stuff that i don't like from him uh, what I love the the over intellectualizing. Oh, no, I, it, I guess you're you're about to explain it, so go ahead. <laughs> yes, so I like it when Wes Anderson exists in a place where he gets to do his sort of very staged, um, very precise 
direction while also maintaining like an emotive beating heart of his story. Mm -hmm. And the French dispatch is so removed. Like that is, it's like the, the narration, like they're reading the articles and the black and white filmmaking and the framing, like the two framing devices and all of it. It was like so many layers of removal that it felt feels very cold to me. And it did not give me a whole lot of like entry way into those stories. Knowing that Asteroid City also has a lot of layers. Um, and this is something we're going to get into is his, his Matryoshka doll story structure. Um, is it also possible the French dispatch didn't work for you because it's three, like, like a- Asteroid City is telling one through story in, in a couple different ways, whereas, um, French dispatch is telling like three short stories with a prelude and a coda and a introduction and an epilogue. Uh, and so like, and, I mean, and so like, like each, it. each story gets like distilled down too little, like, like, so that each story becomes too, um, uh maybe sparse uh to to get to that beating heart that you you like out of him well but i i like an anthology like Mm -hmm. i i have watched and enjoyed many anthology films where you only have like so much time to kind of get to the core of your story Mm -hmm. um i also realized watching the french dispatch i do not enjoy it when he does sexy stuff I don't want him to do that. <laughs> it is weird. I, I think only, like, starting with French Dispatch and in Asteroid City, that, that crops up in a way where I'm always like, I guess Hotel Chevalier, too, in a way. Um, but it's always like, oh, Wes, earning that R rating, huh? Hmm. Like, I, and also, I feel bad for Leah Saidu. Like, can we get her an age-appropriate romance? Please. <laughs> I, I saw your letterbox review of that, and I did the math, and... Based on the 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 uh, fully inaccurate age divided by two plus seven, she and Javier Bardem are technically age appropriate, uh, but that's just because as you get older, that span becomes wider. No, he's like twenty years older than she is, and yeah. so is Viggo Mortensen, and so is Daniel Craig. Can somebody get this woman? Also, I did so not what, love that sorry, the what, first we see of her. What movie is she in with what? Vigo? Uh, Crimes of the Future. Ah, uh, I still need to see that. Oh. It's upsetting. You'll I'm, probably wait, like what? it. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> a, a Cronenberg movie's upsetting? <laughs> um, I didn't love that the first we see of her is a full, full frontal nude shot. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I know you really liked the segment with Benicio del Toro. Uh, my fa- my favorite part of the French Dispatch was the Owen Wilson segment, the kind of opener. <laughs> I loved that too. And then, and then all of the like interstitial stuff at the newspaper. I was like, that's what I want to be watching. <laughs> yep. That has like real character relationships and like has warmth and heart. And you want to see Elizabeth Moss yeah, the- <laughs> diagramming those sentences <laughs> deeply? Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The thing is, like, for um, um, so yeah, yeah, like I, I, I loved, I loved the painting one, um, the the first one with uh, Tilda writing it, and then the the other two, I thought that the the writers, um, uh, 
there were so many people uh francis mcdormand uh for revisions to a manifesto and, and then jeffrey wright and jeffrey wright jeffrey wright just absolutely owning bones um i could listen to him oh, no, play right. roebuck Wright and and do his stuff but each those those two sequences um like as a whole i enjoyed uh the concrete masterpiece the uh the tilda swinton one the most but there were moments in both the francis mcdormand and the jeffrey wright one where i was just like struck by and this is i think a, a wes anderson thing of like struck by a moment of deep profundity and sadness that's nestled inside a, a bigger sort of wackier crazier world but like things just come to a stop and we sit here with this moment of you know sort of profound sadness or profound empathy or profound you know uh openness to the universe writ large uh and then we go right back into the the wacky storytelling that's happening um uh yeah and and i i liked those moments mm -hmm. i don't know the balance was off for me that's fair um and like i i and... i love the french dispatch and i'm never gonna bat an eye if someone is like that movie did not do it for me i'm like uh-huh <laughs> it is a deeply idiosyncratic work and if you're not on its wavelength you're not on its wavelength. So yeah, I th at the end of the day, what works best for me is when Wes Anderson lets himself be a little closer to his work, like lets or lets the the author or um the actors be a little closer to the surface. I think he can out direct himself into um like artificiality to the point of coldness. So why Which do you go ahead to asteroid city? <laughs> Thank you. I was about to say, so asteroid city, um... which has almost served as sort of a Rosetta's stone for me, for him. Like asteroid city, watching asteroid city has helped me be able to articulate what it is about his work that, I am drawn to and what it is about the works that I don't care for. Mm -hmm. And it's because like Asteroid City is a play inside of like two other framing devices. <laughs> There's a TV show um, about the writing of the play and then the play itself. And then the play itself. But I, I feel that even though we have like this very structured like having it be a play serves to then have Wes be able to say, like, of course it looks so over the top and so cinemascope. Like it's the thing itself is artificial, mm -hmm. but the performances feel like they, they have looped so far around from artificiality that they come back to a sort of sincerity well, be, because there, the, there's a moment the setting is artificial, but the performances are real, which is what you would expect going to a play like going to the yes, theater. the performances and the performances, I feel, are deeply genuine. There is a moment in it which I truly have not stopped thinking about towards the end where Jason Schwartzman puts his hand on a hot plate mm -hmm. and burns himself. And he's talking to Scarlett Johansson and she looks at him and you can tell that she has stopped acting in just this brief moment. And she says, you really did that. Mm. And it's like, she 
it is not the character that Scarlett Johansson's character is playing. It is like, oh, this guy actually did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really, I really loved that Anderson was able to put that in there. It almost served as sort of an acknowledgement of the fact that he is a very precise, mechanical, artificial filmmaker, but that there is also space in there for moments of like real human emotion and pain. And where I think that he is best is when he manages to put those things in balance. Mm-hmm. I think you can make the argument that his earlier stuff is more on the side of like what actual humans, like the movies that actual humans make and that we are now sort of starting to see a balance between the purest form of Wes Anderson's expression versus what is sort of more mass marketable. Um, but I think that if if Asteroid City is the direction that he's moving in, I'm very in favor of it. I think that that movie balances those two things much more effectively than something like The French Dispatch or The Grand Budapest Hotel. Well, and, and speaking of those two movies, um, I in in many ways, you know, looking at his filmography, I think of Moonrise Kingdom as sort of being in conversation with Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, they they're very, you know, precocious children kind of idea. Um, but after after Moonrise Kingdom, he does Grand Budapest, Isle of Dogs, which we'll just pretend doesn't exist, uh, and then French Dispatch and Asteroid City, which are all... The term that both he uses and then therefore everyone who writes about him uses is dollhouse, um, you know, sort of structures and, and setting and, and, you know, design um, and meticulousness. But beyond that, um, Budapest, French Dispatch, and Asteroid City are all like eight layers deep of of nesting story structure and that's something that i love but that can be something that that creates a remove which i think you you push back against in many ways um when it's not deployed intentionally and so i i think it's wild that he with asteroid city he sort of found a way to create this incredibly elaborate nesting doll story structure married to his insane dollhouse visual language, but also use it to go deep in into grief. Um which a well, lot of his movies are, are I, I was, Well I was gonna uh, segue to Darjeeling in a way, but but I want you to, to have your uh coda too, but like a lot of his movies deal with um like the trauma of usually a parent figure who has recently passed or, or someone important who has recently passed. And watching Darjeeling again for this in the first time in forever, uh, probably since college, I was struck by how emotionally mature it felt while at the same time not feeling like a Wes Anderson movie just because, <clears throat> I mean, obviously it is very Wes Anderson, but it's not as meticulous as, say, Grand Budapest or French Dispatch or Asteroid City in terms of its, or even Moonrise Kingdom in terms of like, the framing and the, you know, the, the Andersonian vibes as it were. Um, but, but take your, take your point before we segue into Darjeeling. I don't quite remember what I was going to oh, say. Sorry. Um, that's fine. No, I cut you off. Um, but 
I I do think that I and I, I said it this way before, I think that he can over direct himself. Like his movies are beautiful pieces of clockwork. Like everything is very intentional. He has a very clear vision. Um and I appreciate that. And I love a big swing. And I love a director who gets to make exactly the movie that they want. <laughs> yes. Um, but I do I do kind of wish that he would be more comfortable in that sort of messy space of um, actor interpretation. Like, I, I think that his earlier stuff is very human in a way that he hasn't been. Um, and I think that he could stand to maybe loosen the reins a little bit. I will say the part of Asteroid City that I liked the least were the Edward Norton bits, hmm. which uh, because they were not because they were not a stage play, I really felt the um, the stiltedness and the over direction of those because there there wasn't that sort of additional layer of excuse for them there, to be. But it was also a stage play because that was part of the like the docudrama television show being narrated by Brolin. That's why it was black I and white. Like, I mean, like, again, like, but at this point, like, we're we're eight layers into, like, the, the Inception dream, and every minute is an hour, and, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but speaking of that, like, I, again, uh, thinking of Darjeeling, and obviously, like, when Darjeeling came out, it's like, yes, this is obviously a Wes Anderson movie. It has all the tropes of Wes Anderson. Um, Owen Wilson, Angelica Houston, Jason Schwartzman, Adrian Brody, what else do you want? Um... But I, I think you, you get to a good point there, which is that in Darjeeling, all three brothers are playing very heightened and Wes Anderson-y people, but they're also all people, right? Like, they're they're allowed to be messy and, you know, Jason Schwartzman is, is shouting, you know, like, stop trying to include me or, like, I'm going to spray you with mace. I love you, but I'm going to spray you with mace or whatever. Um, whereas by the time we get to, to especially French Dispatch and Asteroid City, everyone is so precise and so removed and cold um, that it takes putting a hand on a hot plate to actually break through that, that mask, right? Um, whereas in Darjeeling, all it takes is to be kicked off a train and failed to save a, a boy from drowning. Spoilers for Darjeeling Limited. <laughs> Spoilers for all these movies. <laughs> are you looking at his, are you looking at a filmography of his right now? Yes, I am. Where does the Life Aquatic land? It's between Tenenbaums of... and Darjeeling. So we went uh, Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic, Darjeeling. Mr. That's Fox. fascinating to me because in a lot of ways... Darjeeling feels like more of an outlier, whereas Life Aquatic feels like establishing the direction that he's going. Like that one feels much stagier. There's like you get the bit with the jaguar shark that is like stop motion <laughs> kind of animation that he starts to work with. When I I, I was and trying then, to I'm I'm trying to think now because I'm forgetting. Um, Life Aquatic definitely has a a cutaway shot of the submarine where we see everyone like going into the different rooms and it's, you know, like, like a, um, 
a schematic cutaway. I don't think we get that of the train in Darjeeling, which is like I don't wild. think so either. Yeah, that 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 is such an obvious move for him to have done, and he doesn't do it. Um, and I think he's trying to be a little more grounded in a lot of ways. Like it, the film feels more mature um, emotionally in a way that then I I like that trajectory. I think carries through to Budapest and Dispatch, and especially Asteroid City. Um, but but it's 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 looser um stylistically yeah yeah that that is just it would have i guess it would have made more sense to me if life aquatic had been after mm-hmm. like Darjeeling limited feels like it has more in common with the royal tenenbaums and rushmore like they feel kind of of a piece and then life aquatic and well actually life aquatic is sort of a weird one it's it's its, it's own um, thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh but the, um, the important the important thing of darjeeling limited though is that it begins with bill murray who misses the train and so that is that's the you know that is our we are you know bill murray will never appear in another west in another wes anderson movie ever again until two years later in fantastic mr fox <laughs> um, but it's it it's it's a very intentional choice to say like here's the guy that i've been using in all of my movies and we're gonna put him to the side for this one and he, he'll show up in more of my movies, don't worry, but he'll never be the central figure in the way that he was in Rushmore or Life Aquatic. I will say my brain had fully overwritten Gene Hackman in Royal Tenenbaums with <laughs> Bill Murray. <laughs> no, Bill Murray plays uh, St. Clair or whatever his name is. Uh, I know, he's like, <laughs> he plays Margot's husband. <laughs> but yes, when I, wrote my, when I wrote my flippant review of French Dispatch where I was like, how many times is Wes Anderson going to make Bill Murray uh, reckon with his own mortality? <laughs> I was thinking about the Royal Tenenbaums in which he does not die or is not dying. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, I, I read that review and I was like, yeah, that's definitely a thing that Anderson has Murray do a lot in his movies. And it's like, no, kind of only like though. Well, and French Dispatch. Where he actually dies. I mean, like, he, I don't Spoilers, know if he, I, I don't think, I don't think he reckons with his mortality in that. He just dies. I guess Bill Murray, the, the, well, no, but the, the person. Actor. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry. I, I read that review as Bill Murray, the character, but yes, you are correct. Bill Murray, the person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. So tell me a little bit about what it is. What is it about Wes Anderson that speaks to you? I mean, listen. I'm like a 35-year-old white guy. All of, like, so many of Wes Anderson's cultural touchstones are also my cultural touchstones, partly because Wes Anderson, being about 20 years older than me, made them my cultural touchstones. Um, so so things like, hey, I did, like, I did a book, uh, I, I did a movie about, like, 1968 New Yorker. I'm not a big New Yorker head, but as as an overly educated, comfortably middle-class white guy, I'm fully on board with that vibe and that kind of movie. Asteroid City, all right, we're going to go deep on, like, Ilya Kazan and and the Method School of Acting. Ditto. I'm all on board with it. So I love his artifice. I love that he is... He continues to be given money to make exactly the movie that he wants, and the movie he wants gets weirder and weirder and more and more complicated. Um... But also realistically, these days, I gravitate to movies that sort of, like, punch me in the gut emotionally. And a lot of his stuff does that. Um, those moments in French Dispatch... And that is... 
That's so fascinating to me because, like I said before, I find so much of his stuff to be very emotionally removed. And I, I but think then, it's... But then he comes in with a gut punch, and that, that stays with me because I love the emotional removal. And then I also love when he takes the mask off and gives you just a 30-second, um, you know, uh, uh, Jeffrey Wright talking about being a lonely person walking through a city alone because there's no one for him but there's always a restaurant with a bottle on a table and a waiter who will take care of him and that's why he likes food um and and then and then we go back and we put the mask back on and we continue with our charade right uh but like for that glimmer of moment we get to a deeper truth and that's that's something i think is so hard to pull off and for me it's so effective um i think he could sit in those moments a little bit longer I would I would be I would love to see him do something where he does that. For me, part of the joy and what makes them stand out is that they are special. They are short and nestled among the wider chaos. And so that like because of that, like you're you're being carried along, carried along, carried along, and then we come to a stop, we have a moment of of, you know, profundity, and then we go back to, to being carried along. Um and like, like I totally get that this is this is a me thing. This is why he works for me so well, uh, and I'm fully on board if it doesn't work for anyone else. Um, well, I think that it clearly does because he gets keeps keep getting money these. to make movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think in general, his stuff is very critically well acclaimed. I mean, the Grand Budapest Hotel got multiple. Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. Uh, nine nominations and four wins. Uh, his only four, uh, his only Academy Awards came from Grand Budapest, and he got four of them. Um, yeah, I put Asteroid City, I'm playing in a movie fantasy league, and I put Asteroid City on my draft ooh. list. Like, mm. I'm I'm expecting this to, to come in big for me as soon as uh, award season hits. I would love for it to, but I think it's going to get steamrolled uh, by some of the bigger by Oppenheimer um especially now hey great news SAG AFTRA is wrapped up with their strike strike is over and it sounds strike like they got over. it sounds like they got what they wanted the people united will never be defeated uh but now Downey Jr can come out with that charm offensive and just you know push both his own boulder and every other Oppenheimer boulder up the hill um but I, I would oh, love, yeah. I would love when, if Asteroid City when, a, when the AMPT, when the AMPT was like, our last offer, it's like, no, it's not. No, it's not. Like, for, <laughs> first off, making money. Right. first off, liars. Second off, you see Oscar, <laughs> you see Oscar season coming down the bend. Like, what are you going to yeah, do? Not have but, actors? Well, and now it's like, how, how do y'all feel who pushed your big Oscar movies to next year? How does it feel, guys? How does it feel to have Dune coming out in March, well, hey, you don't, assholes? Don't worry. Zazlef, genius, uh, scrapped some John Cena live-action um, Looney Tunes movie for a tax write-off because he pushed Dune into next year. Uh, the John Cena movie would have made more money than the tax write-off was worth, but that's why we pay Zazlev the big bucks to um, lose a lot single, of subscribers this quarter. Every single streaming CEO should be fired yeah, for this. Uh, uh, fired out of a cannon. And into space. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. flexible. Yeah. 
Hard, um, hard to but yes. Um, pulling pulling back to to Anderson though. Um, and and thinking of Darjeeling, which I had not watched since college, and I enjoyed when I watched it, but I always thought it was one of his slighter movies. Um, but rewatching it for this, I I bump it up a fair amount in my um, estimation of it because it is dealing with that profundity in a lot of interesting ways, uh, ways that I don't think he gets to, like, ways that he doesn't do again. Um, Adrian and, Brody gets to do some stuff in there that he just doesn't usually for him. Yeah, Brody was uh, incredible, but also Owen Wilson was hitting some Deep yes. emotional beats. Um, honestly, because I had just seen Asteroid City, I was kind of like Jason Schwartzman's the weak link here because in twenty in, in fourteen years he's just gonna blow it out of the park. <laughs> you know, <laughs> for sure. Uh, that being said, I love Jason um, Schwartzman looking like uh, George Harrison in in, in Dark Knight. Oh, no, he was great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you don't don't think this one's gonna, you don't think Asteroid City is gonna score even some nominations? I think it'll score nominations. Um, I don't know if it's gonna pick up any hard, the the problem is this is a really good year for movies, so it's like, it could be up there for screenwriting, but like... uh... I think it will at the Globes because I think it's going to get sorted into comedy and there it's big competition will be Barbie, mm-hmm. which you is pretty stiff competition. I'm going to bet that both Barbie and Oppenheimer will be considered adapted screenplays. So Asteroid City might win original screenplay. Um, Oppenheimer's so definitely adapted big... and I'm betting Barbie just because... Well, the other big hitter, so I did not draft either Oppenheimer or Barbie because they were both very expensive picks. Mm. Um, The heavy hitter on my lineup is Killers of the Flower Moon. Also adapted screenplay, though, which is why I think French or uh, uh, Asteroid City has a has a shot at original screenplay. Yes, that was my that was my thinking. I also think that the Yorgos Lanthimos movie is going to mm. get into adapted screenplay. We can talk about this later. Is that going to like <laughs> what based on like Frankenstein? It is a Frankenstein story. It is not based on Frankenstein. Do you think they might kick it into adapted anyway? No, I think it's going to be in there for original. Oh, in original. Okay, got it. We're getting into Oscar season. It's, we can we can talk Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting into Oscar season, and it feels like like it's gonna be a weird year for but, Oscar but, movies. But partly that's because we have a lot of really good movies. Like twenty twenty three is a. Like we're not done with it yet. I would. I'm still excited to see uh, Pretty Things. Um, excited to see Napoleon. Those are like the two big contenders. I I still am looking forward to seeing uh, and the Miyazaki. Um, uh, yes, but like we, do you mean it's poor been poor things. I do mean poor things. Yeah. Um, okay. I was like, what is pretty things? <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, you know, the new David Bowie movie. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, like it's, it's a, it, it's going to be a weird year for Oscars because it's a good year for movies. And that's exciting. Yeah. I, don't I know, think you... there has been a 
You still haven't there seen have Flower Moon. I loved uh, Oppenheimer more than you did. That's true. I haven't seen Oppenheimer. Then I definitely loved it more than you did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I saw Barbie. I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet. Uh, anything else you want to talk about for, for Wes Anderson? Did I... Obviously, I'm not trying to convince you of anything because, honestly, like for me, at the end of the day, Anderson is all about... Um, I'm not going to use the word vibes, uh, your favorite word of mine. I was going to say, but like, the vibes, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you, you really do have to be on his wavelength, right? Um, and that wavelength is it well, becomes and more and more um, uh, idiosyncratic <sighs> as, as he makes more and more movies and is allowed to do whatever the heck he wants. Um, but I also feel, I also feel like Asteroid City is less idiosyncratic than something like The French Dispatch. Like, if this is the direction that we're going in, I'm very excited because Asteroid City feels like a language I can speak in a way that French Dispatch didn't. Interesting. Do you, I'm 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 trying to parse that because I think that they're both wildly idiosyncratic and I get that like Asteroid City had a had a much deeper sort of like emotional through line. Do you also think it's that it's like, you're like, yeah, I get that it's 1968 New Yorker. I don't care. Like, that doesn't, like, that's not, it's not like, that appealing. I, I mean, it's not, it's not that I don't care. It's that I like, that doesn't don't do anything. recognize, like, I don't recognize a lot of those references. Like, mm-hmm. if he is, if he is making very specific homages to specific people, I don't know who any of those people are. Right. I mean, the, the biggest uh, example would be, uh, or, or like literally the only one that I would have clocked without knowing, without having been pre-primed for it, is Jeffrey Wright's character is definitely like a James Baldwin uh, type. Um, but like, I, I know that Tilda Swinton's character is based on a famous author because I was told that and I could sort of like put that together based on her vibes. But I would not, I don't know who that is. Uh, and ditto with Francis McDormand. Um, but like Je- Jeffrey Wright as doing like a James Baldwin, I'm like, I have seen James Baldwin interviews. That is very much like that sort of style of him, uh, speaking and, and so on. Um, but yeah, if you're just like, I don't know, and Tilda's, I'm... Tilda's doing a bit. <laughs> Tilda's sure is being an art <laughs> critic. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did love, I did, I did kind of love the culmination of that story with the paintings on the concrete prison walls. Like that was very appealing to me in a F the art world kind of way. Yes, yes. Um, And yeah, there were pieces of that I really liked. I liked the the constructed tableaus of violence that sort of followed the artist's work (laughs) wherever they were shown. And it being Um, done by just having people stand still. And, like, you can see them, like, yes. shaking a little bit because they're just standing still. <laughs> yeah, like I like I was saying, constructed tableaus. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I did not want to see Benicio Del Toro get naked with Leia Saidu. That was upsetting, and I didn't care for it. Um, Fair. Yeah, I don't know. I should go back. I should perhaps revisit grand budapest hotel um, because I, I do in what I, I i think it's i think it is more of an asteroid city than it is a french dispatch 
Or maybe I'll just watch Fantastic Mr. Fox again, which we haven't really talked about, but is truly excellent. And I I do wish that Wes Anderson would do more stop motion animation because that does kind of seem like the perfect match to his to what he wants to be doing. Like if you want to construct everything, like okay. Construct it's, it. <laughs> it's a real shame he only did one stop at stop motion animation movie, uh Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um <laughs> listen, I did uh, not bother to see the Isle of Dogs because I knew I would not care for it. I did. So I cannot speak to it. I did. It was fine. It's probably my low I I haven't seen Battle Rocket. It's probably my lowest ranked. It is it is certainly my lowest ranked Wes Anderson movie. Um and then I would well, put Bottle Rocket, a movie I haven't seen. <laughs> I just I think that Wes Anderson should stick to white people. <laughs> on on the other hand, like, on the other hand though Darjeeling like part of what Darje- makes Darjeeling I think work is that it is white people in India, but it's it's neither exoticizing the country, like it's not it's not exoticizing the country. And also they are tourists. So the fact that everything about it is being sort of like, yeah, we're white folks here on a spiritual journey. Like you could not be any more basic. Um, exactly. Well, does Isle of Dogs have that same sort of removal? I mean, the main characters are dogs. So. Not, I mean, no, no, like, <laughs> like it's... Darjeeling Limited works. I think Darjeeling Limited works for the, the reasons that you just said, like it is, it is taking place in India, but he does not presume to sort of describe the Indian experience. Like, it mostly takes place on a train. Also true. Like through through India, following George Harrison and his friend, his brothers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's like great. This is exactly what what you'd expect from that. Uh, do we want to touch at all on the roll doll stuff? Uh, we can just to say it is uh, absolutely wild that Netflix is apparently just burying this. Even though I actually these might win. I could see these winning best Anime, short. These original shorts. Original yeah. short, yeah. Um, but also, did they ever get released in a theater? Are they? I assume Netflix um, is smart no. enough to have released them in a theater for one day in New York and LA to qualify. Possibly. Um, um, these were fascinating to me because, again, these have these are these are very Asteroid City yes. in terms of like they are being set up like plays. And I thought, I see, I really enjoyed how playful he got with that conceit here. Like the way that characters move in and out of scenes, how the narration gets handed off to different places, how he achieves some effects. Like he just does some of the effects like they would be done on the stage, which I thought was very, very cool. Yes. Um, but he also mixes in a little bit of that stop motion animation. I don't know. These, these I thought were very fun. Um, I I agree. I so you had actually read some of these stories. I had not read any of them. So this was my first exposure to like to the plot, right? As and the language as well as the 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 Andersonness of it all. Um and ten ten minutes into to Henry Sugar, his long 40-minute one, I was just like, I am like, put this in my veins. I just want this. Every movie should be this, <laughs> which which would get old very quickly. But I was so captivated by what he was doing structurally and formally 
Um, and this this is also part of like the the Wes Anderson stuff that works for me is when he gets like really weird formally and sort of intentionally pulls back the screen of the art, like puts the artifice front and center so you can never not be thinking that what you're watching is three layers deep in a, in you know in artifice. Um, yeah, Henry Sugar is just a weird story because the end result of it is basically look at this very good rich man. <laughs> yes, yeah. The uh, the message, I don't co-sign the message other than more rich people should get rid of all of their wealth. Uh, all that, of their money, yeah, yes. All, all of their money. I co-sign um, that part, but. I, so The Swan is one of the stories that he adapted, and that is one that, so I've read all of these. They're collected into a, a, a volume called The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar and Six More. Mm. And The Swan is one that has stuck with me since I read it because it's very upsetting. Um, it's about a precocious little boy who gets relentlessly bullied. Uh, and one day he's out bird watching and a, a group of basically thugs from his school, like, find him and torment him to the point of like, oh, you guys are going to kill this boy. Um, I I thought that the short really does a pretty incredible job at like cutting to the quick of that story because it's a short story and then it's like a 12 or 15 minute short. Like it is on, it is much shorter. Um, yeah. The, the other three are all, are all around 20 minutes. Um, maybe 15 to 20. But yeah, this is a story where like three boys kill a swan, butcher it, and then tie the wings to this poor little boy and make him like climb a tree and tell him to fly. And the sort of wondrous thing about the story is that then he does like it, it has a very sort of fairy tale quality while still feeling very grounded in the realities of like what it is like to be a kid who is bullied this badly and this dangerously yeah Um, and i i i read that ending as a like listen how do you want to how do you want to think about this ending do you want the ending to be he does or do you want the ending to be uh he doesn't (laughs) uh you know and you can sort of go either way on that one um but i i loved the swan it will not surprise you that Marin was less enthused with it. I mean, to me, it's very sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Roald Dahl's stuff is all mean. Yeah, it's kind of why it's great. Like that's kind of his thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's why it's great. <laughs> um, um uh, fantastic, Mister Fox. Also, Roald I, Dahl. Uh, you you texted me the other day about a a review of um, French Dispatch on the Roger Ebert website, obviously written you know at, by by a contributor to the website since Ebert had died. Uh, but that led me to go and read all of the reviews on RogerEbert.com of Wes Anderson's stuff, and his bit at the end, and it was actually Ebert writing it um, uh, for Fantastic Mr. Fox. Is he's he talks about the fact that. Um, Uh, quote, children especially will find things they don't understand and things that scare them. Excellent. A good story for children should suggest a hidden dimension, and that dimension of course is the lifetime still ahead of them. Uh, Six is a little early for a movie to suggest to kids that the case is closed. And then he gets, you know, 
Eberty. Oh, what if the kid starts crying about words they don't know? Mommy, mommy, what's creme brulee? Show them for goodness sakes. They'll thank you for it. Uh, and that's that idea is very rolled doll of like kids like kids should be scared. They should be exposed to things bigger than them because that's how they will grow well, and, and, more, and learn. More than that, kids like to be scared. Yes. Like that is something that as I am a person who works with children, mostly teenagers, but you know, all children and kids seek that stuff out because it is a way for them to handle and process the feelings of fear in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. Like a movie or a story, no matter how upsetting or disturbing it is, is not going to hurt a child, but it allows them to feel that fear and figure out what to do with it in the safest environment possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there are some authors who really understand that sort of intrinsically, that it is not only good, but it is necessary for children to feel fear and to be confronted with like very scary ideas. I'm, I'm going to take this in a direction that might be full nonsense, but I think Anderson is a good pairing for Dahl because so much of, of the best part of Wes Anderson is confronting those same fears, but for adults, you know, like, I mean, the fear of death, right? Like you lose, you lose a loved one or, you know, you are not a shining, invincible space wavelength, whatever, whatever Timothy Chalamet says he is. Um, uh, and that, and, and, Wes sort of, like, takes that and processes it and allows you to process it in a safe way, in the same way that a kid can process, you know, the unknown or or being bullied uh, in, a, in a very different way um, through something like Roald Dahl. So I, that, in a way, I think they have very similar sensibilities in that way. And obviously with adult works, we don't think of it as, like, being scared and processing your fears. It's like, ah, deep emotional truth. But, like... So many of Wes Anderson's deep emotional truths come out of grief, um, or or more adult fears like you know confrontation or or change or growing up or what have you. That's interesting. I I did want to ask why you think Wes Anderson has made such a good like Wes Anderson is pretty much the only filmmaker that I think has successfully adapted Roald Dahl in sort of the full glory of his grotesque. Like I do really enjoy the Mara Wilson um, Matilda, but it does not (laughs) have a whole lot to do with the original Matilda book. And the Gene Wilder, Um, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is great because of Gene Wilder. Yeah. Although that one, that one I think also gets close. I think Wes Anderson has just had a chance to work with more of it. Yeah. Um, and then the less said about Stevie Spiels's the BFG, the better, frankly. And then there's um, Tim Burton's Willy Wonka. And then there's the upcoming Chalamet oof. Willy Wonka. And uh, that's not there's on my list of movies I'm looking forward to see this year. The Witches adaptations have been uh, have been fun. But yeah, Wes Anderson clearly like gets to work with more of the material Um and I just think, I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is the best one. <laughs> like, I, I literally watched it last night, and I gotta say, pour yourself a hard alcoholic cider and, um, and, and curl up with a, ni- with a, a less than 90 minute perfect autumnal film. 
It's so good. <laughs> Eat a donut. <laughs> well, I, not not a, a foie gras filled donut, though. Ideally. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> that, that is the sound i made when the movie said that he eats donuts filled with goose liver <laughs> um yeah I, I i not thought about this until now when when you were explaining why children like scary things it made me think of like the adult version of scary things is like you know the loss of a loved one or change you know change uh, you know confrontation in, in a big way um and that's that's mm -hmm. often the emotional core of wes anderson's stuff so in a lot of ways it makes sense that that they they work together as a pairing yeah. and also also doll has such fun language and you know wes anderson is such we, we've been talking about like his visual aesthetic but part of it too is like his like often he ends up writing with roman coppola and someone whose last name is Wilson, uh, whether it's Owen or Luke, um, uh, Schwartzman as well, uh, who's just a Coppola by another name. Um, so, like, between between him and, and his writing cadre, they have such an incredible control over language that it makes sense that with his um, uh, doll adaptations here, he's just like, listen, we're just going to read the story <laughs> word for word for word because part of the joy is the language of it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Anything else you want to say before we uh, put this to bed? No, I think that about does it for me. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for listening. Um, you can find us on, you know, the good social medias. Uh, you can find us on most of the social medias at Did You Do Your Homework or at DYDYH. Um, we are on Instagram, I think we're still on Twitter, and Blue Sky at that handle. Um, Facebook at Did You Do Your Homework. You can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, Martha, what do you plug in? Yes. What, uh, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me at all the places at Magical Martha, uh, including Letterboxd, Blue Sky, you know, all the, all the relevant places. Um, I'm also on TikTok as the Libratrix, and I exclusively post 30-second videos of my guinea pigs doing stuff, so that's pretty fun. Uh, I write a newsletter every once in a while, which you can find at tinyletter.com backslash MagicalMartha. I'm still working through the Disney animated movies in release order. Um, I paused during October to watch a bunch of scary movies, although I did not hit 31 because I had to go on vacation. Oh darn! Had um, to. And yesterday, <laughs> yesterday I watched The Fox and the Hound, which took me a while because I was not looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. Um, but yes, we are through that. Is uh, the Black Cauldron next? It is. How Ooh. did you know? I uh, keep forgetting. I, I, I've got a vague. <laughs> I've got a vague enough sense of of the um the dark period for Disney there. Uh, yeah, I also I... had to take a break to watch The Secret of Nim, <laughs> which <laughs> when, absolutely and, uh, owns. Mer Mer Little Mermaid comes after, like immediately after Black Cauldron, right? Like Black Cauldron is their total financial disaster, and then uh, Mermaid is their like the beginning of the Renaissance, right? That is incorrect, Ooh, sir. What's in between? Um. do so we have i'm into the 80s 
I have just watched The Fox and the Hound. I will watch The Black Cauldron. Then we have The Great Mouse Detective. And then we have uh, Oliver and Company. Oh. And only then <laughs> do we get Ugh. to The Little Mermaid. They, they truly were in a dark night of the soul there, weren't they? Um, uh, except that I love the, the Great, Great Mouse, Mouse Detective, Detective right. whips. Yes, so. yes. That, I, I was excluding that one when I, when I said that snarky <laughs> comment. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yes, and then we enter the movies that are sort of baked into my DNA because I was born in 1987. <laughs> right, yes. Oh. <laughs> oh, well, you can find... Uh, I also do... Oh, yep, go ahead. I also do another podcast that updates on the same feed. It is called Love Ya. I record it with Pete's wife, Marin. We talk about teen cinema and adult rom-coms. Uh, we just did an episode on the movie Love Again, starring Priyanka Chopra-Jones. And our next movie is going to be You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah on Netflix. Which is a great title. Yes. It is an Adam Sandler production and Adina Menzel is in it. I'm very excited about this movie. Ah, interesting. Well, you can find me on Letterboxd and Blue Sky at P Romberg, P R H O M B E R G. Um, I'm still technically on Twitter at Pico3000, but. You know, I'm weaning myself off that particular drug by switching over to Blue Sky. Um, and I think that's it. Next episode for Did You Do Your Homework is an exciting one. We are teaming up again with our good friends, Catching Up David, to talk Miyazaki. We're not entirely sure what the films are yet. We know, we're almost certain that Spirited Away is going to be on that list. And we're all going to try to watch his new movie coming out in just a, in basically a month, uh, The Boy and the Heron, um, or How Do You Live in its Japanese uh, title. Um, but we are very excited for this because obviously, it's shocking to anyone still listening, Martha and I love us some Miyazaki. Uh, and we love hanging out with Catching Up David crew. So go take a listen to their podcast. Um, and listen to us in a couple weeks when we get to chat with them about Miyazaki. Yes, I'm deeply excited. Yes. Uh, I think that's going to do it for us. So until next time, enjoy doing your homework. And your homework is like, watch Spirited Away, watch The Boy and the Heron, and watch, I don't know, your other top five Miyazakis. Grab bag, bag, have fun. Uh, So do that homework. And until next time, class dismissed. Cool. Yeah, that should even be a reasonable length, I think.